Let me just show you a clip from the same movie we looked at a couple weeks ago from the Franco Zeffirelli 1977, Jesus of Nazareth. And the reason I'm using the same one because I particularly like how he um, does this scene. Zeffirelli, like in the other scene we looked at, he, he changes the scene. I mean, he adds things, he subtracts things, and he's trying to get it across what he thinks is the heart of the scene we're going to look at, which is well, the scene of the, um, cent- Jesus healing a centurion's servant. And I think he does a good job with it, even though he alters the scene. So a couple of things, to, just, just what, what struck me, you know, I talked to you about two weeks ago, this film is how Jesus has that sort of serial, I'm, you know, looking through you, look that Zeffirelli was shooting for. Well, this one he has less that. He still has the sort of off in the clouds look at the beginning. But his response toward the end of it shows more of, of the humanity of how Jesus, you would expect, would respond to something that, that strikes him. And so we'll watch this and then we'll launch into the uh, talk. Everybody they met. The room no here? Damn. Is he a centurion? So the wedding hall was full of people. I'm sorry if I disturb you, Rabbi. But I would like to ask you a great favor. I have a servant in my house. I've had him a long while. And he's good, loving, more like a son than a servant. He's very sick, dying, I fear. Rabbi, in all humility, you would like me to come to your house? Very well. I will come with you. No. I am unworthy that you should enter under my roof. I know that if if you say the word, my servant will be healed. I am a man under authority. I myself have authority over a hundred soldiers, and if I say to one of them, do this, I know that he will do it. And if I say to another, go there, I know that he will go. I need not see. I know. So it is enough that you give the word, and it will be done. Do you hear this man? I have seldom found such faith among the people of Israel. Go home. Your faith has cured your servant. chosen people how can a pagan be worthier than a son of Israel everybody everybody is welcome at my father's table rich poor masters servants children of Abraham and the pagans come home it's all right Marcus is well your servant is cured 
What? Come on. Come on. Come and see for yourself. Go on. My eyes are short. Come on. Come to your house. So it is that the Lord our God is the God of our fathers. In a lot of ways, faith has become such a nebulous word, nebulous concept. It's, it's hard at some level to to, to get a handle on it. Um, at the you know at the simplest level, all faith means it's what I believe is going to happen. You know, in the song, the Death Cab for Cutie song, Kath has faith. She has something she believes is going to happen. She believes life's going to go downhill. You know, her heart's dying fast, and she is she is trapped. That's what she believes. That's Based upon what she's seen, that is her expectation. You know, everybody's got that. Everybody expects something to happen, um, whether they think about it much or not. At another level, you know, faith means I have a level of confidence or trust in something happening, which I don't know for sure, but I have a level of trust. But that object of that trust can be either good or bad. You know, I could, I could believe with all of my heart with everything within me, that the Detroit Lions are going to win the Super Bowl next year. Because I like Lions. And because I like blue and silver. I could also believe that the Pittsburgh Steelers, with all my heart, were going to win the Super Bowl next year. Because they have the best defense in football and a quarterback who's already won one once. I could throw in there the fact that the Detroit Lions are the first team in history to lose all of their games and the Pittsburgh Steelers are in the conference championship. But I could still, if I choose to, I can believe that nobody can stop me. I can believe the Detroit Lions will be the Super Bowl champions next year. And if I really had an intense sense of belief in that, I'd go to Vegas because, quite honestly, I'm going to get really good odds. <laughs> you know, faith is what someone chooses to believe, what they rest in, what they, choose, they have confidence in, but it can be either honestly good or, or bad. But today we want to focus on, and not just some vague sense of belief and why somebody believes something, but I want to take it far more concrete. I want to look at sort of the contours of what the faith of somebody who follows Jesus would look like. What are the, what are the edges of that? What are the, how, does that how does that shape out? And... How does that affect our lives today? Because if it stays in the nebulous realm, it won't affect your life at all. But it's interesting, it was interesting to me, as I was walking through this and thinking through this message, quite honestly, like the first two-thirds of it just sort of, it just, it was easy. It was just, oh, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And then as I was, as I was trying to think through, what, am I, what are we, what's this, this story teaching us? What's the, what's the specific content of faith that can make a difference today? Not, not someday, but can actually make a difference today that, that shapes my life. That, was, that took a far more work. And, and then I think in the end, something became very clear that's, that's been important for me. And, and I think you'll find somewhat um, pointed when we get toward the end. The first we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the passage. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll move on from there. Again, as, as Deirdre said, we're in a series called Awkward Conversations, exploring these continual encounters that Jesus has where he just sort of unsettles the status quo and says and does surprising things. And all of these encounters will be in the book of Luke. 
And in this one, we'll look at in just a minute, it's Luke chapter 7. It's the passage that's viewed as the healing of the centurion's servant. And again, I'm going to read the passage, we're going to go through it, because Zeffirelli's take on it, while I enjoy how he framed it, it's not actually how it happened. Anyway, here's some of the history, some of the background. Again, this happens in the city of Capernaum, which we, we've talked about before. It's a, a seaside town, not particularly big, but important because it was a crossroads. It was, it, was a, it was a stopping point, a way station where people moved from one place to another. And so there was a lot of commerce that was done there, and a lot of people flowed through there. And because Galilee, as we talked about, had been the seat of a lot of revolt and rebellion, there also were a, a, a you know, significant amount of, of Roman soldiers stationed there because people were coming in through, and that sort of makes for conspiracy and revolt and stuff. So that's the, that's the place. And then the concept of a centurion. I mean, if you watch that film, what Zeffirelli was trying to get across, you watch as the, as the centurion moved forward, there was whispering, there was people literally moving away from him. And, and centurions, who were leaders of 60, 80, 100 soldiers, were not liked. And they were not liked in Israel for, for three reasons. One is that they were the image. They were a symbol of everything that people believed was wrong with Israel. As they, they were the symbol of oppression. They were the symbol of Israel not being free. They were the symbol of promises not having been yet met. And so just their appearance, just them walking down the street, would sort of dig at an Israelite and saying, mm, the Romans are still here. They weren't simply a symbol, though. They were actually the practical implementation of oppression. As I said, in Galilee, Galilee was a place of revolt. People were revolting left and right. And the Russians, uh, the Russians, the Russians. I mean, seriously, where does that come from? <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't the Russians, it was the Germans. Now, the, uh, the Romans... The Romans crushed revolt. You don't establish and hold on to a massive empire by letting people get away with revolt. You crush it so they won't do it again. The Israelites kept doing it no matter how hard you crushed it, but they would crush it. Thousands of people would be killed, sacrificed, crucified, made an example of. And the ones who were doing this were the centurions with their soldiers. And so they weren't just a symbol. They were the practical implements of oppression. And then to, to, to top it off, the, the Jews considered them just to be sort of uncivilized, uncircumcised, unclean pagans. You don't associate with them. They eat the wrong food. You don't go in their house. You don't touch them. And so a centurion was hated, despised. Contempt was held for them. That's the situation. That's the background as we come to this scene. And I'm going to read part of it, talk a little bit about it, and go on. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Okay, this is awkward. A centurion approaches some of the elders of the Jews, the people who hated the centurions, and he asks a favor, a significant favor. 
He asked them to go approach Jesus, whom they had at best an indifferent and tumultuous relationship with, and ask him a favor. And he asked them to do this for the sake of a servant. For some reason, the elders went ahead and approached Jesus. They took the request of this centurion, hated for all the reasons I talked about, about his servant, a piece of property in that culture. And they went up and had to humble themselves before Jesus. Now, you, you all have had a relationship with somebody where it hasn't gone really well, and then you discover you need to ask them a favor. And it's not the best of moments. And so they have to bring this bizarre request to somebody that they had had at best an awkward and indifferent relationship with. And they do it. They go up there, gird themselves up. Okay, Jesus, there's a centurion. He's got a servant. I know it's just, and he's a centurion, but you know we're still a little uncertain about who you are, but he thinks you can heal his servant, so would you mind leaving where you are now, walking over to where he lives? I know you're not supposed to enter a Roman's house. I know that's going to make you ceremonial and clean for days, but would you mind just going ahead and doing that small thing? And um, Jesus, to you know, if you read his story of his life, not surprisingly, they may have been surprised, but not surprisingly, he says, "Okay, sure." So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, "Lord, don't trouble yourself." And he's like, "Wait a minute! You ask somebody over, you ought to not renege." As they're about to walk up to the house, he's already gotten up. They've already made the request. He's already walked across town. He's made, you know, the elders are like, don't trouble yourself. It's a little late for don't trouble yourself. We've already humbled ourselves. We've already groveled before this guy. He's already gotten up. He's already coming over here. Don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. Now this is a man of an amazing amount of authority. Talking to a son of a carpenter and a group of people that they were dominating. And he says to him, I'm not really worthy for you to come under my roof. An amazing moment of humility. But you say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. He says, you know, I, I, I've seen how you work. I, I know we don't need some trickery. I know you don't need to come into my house and, you know, wave some magic stuff and do some dance. I know how authority works. I know how power works. When I tell one of my soldiers to do something, he does it. I don't have to follow it up because I know how authority works, and so does my soldier. When I say it, it's done. Jesus, I believe that you have that same level of authority, not over soldiers, but over existence. And if you say something should happen, it does. Well, here's Jesus' response to that. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. 
I love that. How often does Jesus get amazed? When Jesus heard this, he was like, seriously, I'm stunned. I'm astonished. Wow, okay. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned to the crowd following him. He said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Okay, this was in, in the sort of tripart awkwardness of this passage. This is the most awkward part. See, he's a centurion. He's a Roman. He's a pagan. Maybe we do him a big favor, you know, because he's given money to the synagogue and he's, you know, nicer than the other Romans. Maybe we do him a big favor and do this healing. But let's not get carried away. What you're saying, let me get this straight, Jesus. What you're saying is this guy has a greater level of trust, of faith in God than us. This people who have lived as the people of God for thousands of years, who have watched you do miracle after miracle, who have seen and read your words to us, you're saying that this guy has more faith than we do. Yeah, yeah that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying exactly that. It says, And the man returns home and the servants well. This passage, I mean, there's a lot of things that come out of this passage. It's, a, it's an incredible passage about humility. Everybody humbles himself. Everybody in the passage humbles themselves to someone else. But more it gives some real content to what trust in God looks like that isn't vague, but is potent and active and shapes the moments of our lives. And so what I want to do is I want to sort of walk through what is the content of our faith? And in the end, bring it down to how will this affect our actions as we live today? You know, at the simplest level, faith, religious faith, means I believe that there is somebody behind the universe. I believe there's a God. I believe that the universe is not a random collection of bits. I believe that there's a designer and architect behind it. Now, for some of you, this may not be a stretch. For me, this was the initial, initial phase and, and an important one for becoming a Christian because I did not believe there was someone behind the universe. I did believe we were a bunch of random bits living isolated lives out in an indifferent universe. And this coming to believe through a variety of things, philosophical, historical, biblical, that there was somebody behind the universe was an important step for me, and there's some benefit even in this level of faith, you know, a vague but still nonetheless sense of an anchor to the universe. You know, if, if, honestly, if you're here today and you don't believe that there's anything behind the universe, that you believe the universe is simply a random collection of of, of moments that that don't matter, that come and pass with no significance whatsoever, at some level, if you give it any level of thought, that will be deadening for your life. It simply will mean I, there's no basis for any hope. And, and the best and most honest thinkers in this will say, well, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I don't have hope because there isn't any. Life just is what it is. So this is the most basic level of Christian faith, which says, I believe there's something behind the universe. And while rather vague and not very practical for the moments of life, it does provide some level of anchor below my life. A further level of faith, as, as progresses on, it is the, the, sort of the specific content of what we call Christian faith. And the specific content of Christian faith is, is quite simply this. 
that yes, there's a God who is over the universe, but that God saw us, knew us, loved us, and chose to become a, a person and come onto earth. He chose to not simply be the architect, but to be the one who's engaged in our lives. And so he came to earth in the person of a man we call Jesus. And he, and he lived a life out teaching some central concepts, teaching that God is there and God is present and God is desiring to be active in your life and teaching, though, that while you and I were made for him, something had happened and we had gotten cut off from him, separated. That trying to follow any number of rules was never going to make that right again. That we were fashioned for God, but our sin, which is simply living apart from the way God called us to, had pulled us away from him. We had, we had willfully withdrawn from God and no longer had the relationship that we were made for. And Jesus would teach that there's the hole that exists in our life because of that. And then the specific content of the Christian faith is in this God who came to earth, not just lived and taught, but then he, he willingly chose to have his life ended. He didn't beam off the planet after six or seven seminars. He literally chose to have his life ended on a cross, to be crucified, and to say, I, I die on purpose. I, I'm calling my shot. Because humanity is separated from God and the separation means that they will exist without God forever and that's a death penalty. I will take their place. I myself, the God who made them, the God whom they have walked away from, will bear the punishment of every sin they've ever committed. I will go down for that. And then we believe that that God rose again three days later because death could not hold him because he was the God of the universe. And he rose and he declared a message, a simple message that says, anybody, and, and, and Zeffirelli puts this in this film, it, it really happens later in his life, but he puts it in this section, anybody, table's wide open, anybody. I don't care where you came from, I don't care what your background is, I don't care if you're religious or not, I don't care what your culture is, I don't care what your color is, I don't care what your gender is, anybody who wants a relationship with me can have it because I have died for you and risen for you and I offer you life with me and life eternal. All you have to do is receive it. Believe. And he says, anybody who does that, I will be their God and I will live with them, for them, and in them. The door is wide open to come. This is the specific content of the Christian faith. And it is the specific content when we receive that that takes us from outside of a relationship with God into a relationship with God. And, and some of you, and I, I definitely remember the moment when I went from one to another. I remember the line. Some of you, some of you remember it too. For some of you, it's been a more of a nebulous process. And I'm not going to go into the time because I've told you before, but I remember the time of, of walking, of taking that step from, I don't believe there's a God, to, yes, I do believe there's a God, to, I'm pretty sure Jesus was him. To, I am cut off from God, and I was made for him. And then that moment where I, as a 17-year-old kid, do what 17-year-old kids do not do. I humbled myself and I bowed before God and said, I want, I want, I want you in my life. Specific content of the Christian faith. And before I move on, for some of you, that's the place where you are, are teetering. You believe in a vague sense in a God out there and some moral teachings by Jesus, but I would have you understand that the specific content of the Christian faith calls you into a relationship with him by believing in his death and resurrection for your life. Now, the third level 
of the Christian faith, or where Christian faith goes on from there. Because for many of us in the room who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we understand the specific content. We believed it. But nonetheless, I'll be honest, nonetheless, we often live our lives as practical atheists. We got this over here in our life, you know, eternal life. Got that going for me, which is nice. And then I don't actually see it lived out in my moments. The story of the centurion fills the gap in between believing Jesus died for my sins and knowing he's in my life and actually living a life of faith that changes the moments of my day. You see, the centurion believed, had utter confidence based on what he saw that Jesus could move in his life and so he acted. It changed his actions. It made him talk to the elders. It caused him to make a request. It caused him to have him go to, the, go to Jesus. He took the need in his life and he said, I believe this true. I have utter confidence and so I will act on it. My life will be different because I will act upon what I believe to be true. I'm going to give you an illustration of this which is at some level imperfect, I understand, but it helped me even to put a, a finger on what I mean myself when I talk about having confidence my son, um, Mason, one of my sons, Mason, is 10 years old. He's a, he's a very fine soccer player. And he was, he was playing in a game last year, and it was a tight game. And they were losing 2-1 to one against one of their rivals. They're two of the best teams in the state. And it was a back-and-forth game, and 2-1, to one, it's getting late. And Mason gets the ball, and, and he beats some guys. He gets into the box, the penalty box, for the non-soccer literates that around the goal and you can't foul somebody in there or you get a penalty kick and as Mason was about to take a shot past the keeper somebody slid in from behind and took him out so penalty kick is called he's about 8 yards from the goalie just only him and the goalie and uh, it's 12 when you get older it's about 8 when you're that age and he stepped up to take it now it's, it, he either makes it and they tie the game and they remain unbeaten or he, he misses it and the game ends and they lose no pressure and some of the parents were like, I can't watch. They said, aren't you nervous? And I said, he'll make it. And they were like, now, I understand this. This was not, I wasn't like, you all know me well enough that I'm not like this big wishful thinking sort of guy. You know, the power of positive thinking. It wasn't that. Mason, I said to that Mason's got ice in his veins. He doesn't get nervous. On big moments, he simply, it's one of the differences how people respond to pressure. I don't know where it comes from, but in big moments, he loves the moment. He doesn't get nervous. He's got ice in his veins. I said, so I said, he'll make it. Now, could he have missed? Of course he could have. But I'd seen him enough in those situations to know that in those situations, he doesn't really flub up. The nerves don't get to us. He puts the ball in the same place every time. He hits it hard enough and low enough that it won't get stopped. And so I had utter confidence that he would put the ball away, which he did. And then the game ended like 30 seconds later and it was tied. But I had confidence of what Mason would do because I had seen him. And so it caused me to have a belief at that moment. Christian faith that acts out in your everyday life is utter confidence that causes you to act because you know who Jesus is and what he can do. And so it shapes everything. 
everything about how you live. Right now, if you have confidence in who Christ is, his love for you, and his power to move, you can live with hope. Not wishful thinking hope. Not, I hope things will get better someday. You can actually live with hope. And the, there's a passage in the, this Old Testament wisdom book of Proverbs where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Trust him. He'll make your path straight. There's another one that says, in, in the book of Hebrews, which is a New Testament book, now, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What that means right now is, for some of you, for all of us at some level, but for some of you, the future looks a little scary. Some of the things you've tried are not working as well given the state of the economy. It looks a little scary. And if you line up the reasons why you might be uncertain and lack a bit of hope, they would make a lot of sense. Faith that is deep and powerful in our lives says, but you know, I do know this. I know that there is a God who saw me, came for me, died for me, and loves me right now. I know there is a God who is not caught off guard by my life and who cares not simply that I get to heaven someday, but cares about my soul today. And so I can have confidence that he knows my days in front of me. That were it left to my own devices, sure, I might lack hope. But I can have hope. He sees me. With that hope, I don't have to act out of fear or despair. I don't have to act with resignation or paralyzation. I can move. Because you see, God's got me. He's got my back. Faith, confidence in God will change how you interact in your relationships. It is my assessment at the age of 49, nearly 50, that perhaps the greatest obstacle to our relationships going the way we want them to is a lack of humility. Is we really feel like in our life we can't afford to be humble. We can't afford to give way because if I give way, who's taking care of me? <laughs> you know, you get into an argument with your, with your wife, husband, roommate, parents, and you get into this cycle and there comes a point, you remember, you know how you feel this? She comes to this point where you actually know you're wrong, but you just can't back down. You just can't. And you know you should, but you can't. Because, you, you know, you've got to save face. Practically speaking, when I have confidence in who Christ is in my life, I can afford to be humble. I can afford to back down. I can afford to give way because I'm not out there on my own. See, the thing is, in our relationships, when things start to go sideways, it's in those moments, I'll just speak for me, that I live like a practical atheist often. And I'm back to just taking the reins of my life and figuring it out and forgetting, forgetting 
that God is in my life and he longs to see me do well and he will care for my soul and so I can afford to live generously and humbly. I don't have to rely on me. I can act without fear. When we have confidence in Christ, this is the last thing I'll say to you. When we have confidence in Christ, it will change the ethical, moral, lifestyle choices you make. It'll change the decisions you make about your life. You see, at one level, what we often think is that, you know, if you, you're supposed to follow, you know, what the Bible says, there's some moral rule because, well, that's what you're supposed to do and you get really in trouble if you don't. And without really dealing with any of that, it's very different. Confidence in Christ means I believe he knows what's best for my life. I trust him. I have seen the track record of a God who was willing to wade into my life, and so I trust him. And so when he shows me a path, it, it behooves me to follow that path to not go the way that seems right to me at the moment, but go the way that God is saying, this is the way you find life. This is the, when push comes to shove in our lives. With those moments where, who am I going to trust with my life? Who am I going to trust for the outcome of my choices? When I make decisions about, am I going to go sleep with somebody or not? Who am I going to trust? Am I going to live based upon what my friends will think of me by that action? Am I going to live based upon what Oprah says? Am I going to live based upon the latest book? Am I going to live based upon my, my fears and indecisions? Or am I going to live based upon what a God whom I can have confidence is because he proves it and has proved it throughout history. What he tells me is the way to life. It's where the rubber meets the road and your choices. I'll give you one very simple illustration. I don't um, get drunk. I don't say that as any moral, you know, morally significant thing. I don't say that to say that I'm in any levels better than somebody who does. I used to. Lots. I didn't stop doing it because it was the right thing to do. I, I like drinking. Understand what I mean by that? I like red wine. Nobody should like white wine. <laughs> Let's get it straight. I like good beer. Nobody should drink bad beer. And so I'll drink wine with friends and I'll have a beer and I'll enjoy it. I don't get drunk because Jesus teaches that either I am in control of my faculties and connected with him and alive or I let something else control me and then I'm not so alive and I don't live the way I want to and I say and or do things that are not who I want to be that at some level if I'm drunk I'm, I'm not able to live connected with God and so it's not like people who drink and get drunk are bad it's like well I want to live my life connected with God and I trust Him. He says this is the way, walk in it.
in that area, I said, okay, I'll walk in it. And there are other areas, and this is the push that comes to shove about developing maturity in our lives, where that's where we're getting pressed. And right now, some of you are getting pressed on a particular point in your life. There's an area in your life where you, you kind of know, you kind of know what Jesus would say about how you should live in that area. And you're, it's just hard <laughs> for a variety of reasons. It's just hard. In the end of the day, Jesus says, trust me. Trust me with your life. Trust me with the big things. Trust me with the small things. I'm for you. Test me. And see if I don't bring life out of your very soul when you walk in the ways I give to you. As we move into the end of our service, this is my challenge to you. My challenge to you is to make a simple request of God in this time. To say, God, would you show me? Would you show me what there is in my life that is causing me to live a life that is killing off my soul and not making it alive? Would you show me what it looks like to trust you instead? Some of you will feel it like that. Others of you, it will develop. I stand here before you as somebody who's tried living lots of ways, but one among literally millions of people who have seen that God in the person of Jesus is utterly trustworthy for my life and for yours. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to us in the midst of these moments? We don't want to live a nebulous life. We want to live a life that's whole. That knows beauty and joy. And you, our God, have laid out pathways for us of beauty and of joy and of power and of health. Would you show us what ways in us are off, where we lack trust in you? Would you break those things down so that we turn to you and we say, Jesus, you're who I trust. I will walk in your ways. And it informs how we act today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.